Part Two of Anything You Can Do by Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. Two fifths of a second. That was all the time Bart Stanton had from the first moment his supersensitive ears heard the faint whisper of metal against leather. He made good use of it. The noise had come from behind and slightly to the left of him, so he drew his own gun with his left hand and spun to his left as he dropped to a crouch. He had turned almost completely around, drawn his gun, and fired three shots before the other man had even leveled his own weapon. The bullets from Stanton's gun made three round spots on the man's jacket, almost touching each other and directly over the heart. The man blinked stupidly for a moment, looking down at the round spots. "'My God!' he said softly. Then the man returned his weapon slowly to his holster. The big room was noisy. The three shots had merely added to the noise of the gunfire that rattled intermittently around the two men. And even that gunfire was only a part of the cacophony. The tortured molecules of the air in the room were so besieged by the beat of drums, the blare of trumpets, the crackle of lightning, the rumble of heavy machinery, the squawks and shrieks of horns and whistles, the rustle of autumn leaves, the machine-gun snap of popping popcorn, the clink and jingle of falling coins, and the yelps, bellows, howls, roars, snarls, grunts, bleats, moos, purrs, cackles, quacks, chirps, buzzes, and hisses of a myriad of animals, that each molecule would have thought that it was being shoved in a hundred thousand different directions at once if it had had a mind to think with. The noise wasn't deafening, but it was all-pervasive. Bart Stanton had reholstered his own weapon and half opened his lips to speak when he heard another sound behind him. Again he whirled his guns in hand, both of them this time, and his four fingers only fractions of a millimeter from the point that would fire the hair triggers. But he did not fire. The second man had merely shifted the weapons in his holsters and then dropped his hands away. The noise, which had been flooding into the room over the speaker system, died instantly. Stanton shoved his guns back into place and rose from his crouch. Real cute, he said, grinning. I wasn't expecting that one. The man he was facing smiled back. Well, Bart, maybe we've proved our point. What do you think, Colonel? The last was addressed to the third man, who was still standing, quietly, looking worried and surprised about the three spots on his jacket that had come from the special harmless projectiles in Stanton's gun. Colonel Mannheim was four inches shorter than Stanton's 5'10", and was fifteen years older, but in spite of the differences, he would have laughed at anyone who had told him, five minutes before, that he couldn't outdraw a man who was standing with his back turned. His bright blue eyes, set deep beneath craggy brows and a tanned face, looked speculatively at the younger man. Incredible, he said gently. Absolutely incredible. Then he looked at the other man, a lean civilian with mild blue eyes a shade lighter than his own, all right, Dr. Farnsworth, 
I'm convinced. You and your staff have quite literally created a superman. Anyone who can stand in a noise-filled room and hear a man draw a gun twenty feet behind him is incredible enough. The fact that he could and did outdraw and outshoot me after I had started, well, that's almost beyond comprehension. He looked back at Bart Stanton. What's your opinion, Mr. Stanton? Think you can handle the knife? Stanton paused imperceptibly before answering, while his ultra-fast mind considered the problem and arrived at a decision. Just how much confidence should he show the colonel? Mannheim was a man with tremendous confidence in himself, but who was capable of recognizing that there were men who were his superiors in one field or another. If I can't dispose of the knife, Stanton said, no one can. Colonel Mannheim nodded slowly. I believe you're right, he said at last. His voice was firm with inner conviction. He shot a glance at Farnsworth. How about the second man? Farnsworth shook his head. He'll never make it. In another two years, we can put him into reasonable shape again, but his nervous system just couldn't stand the gaff. Can we get another man ready in time? Hardly. We can't just pick a man up off the street and turn him into a superman. Even if we could find another subject with Bart's genetic possibilities, it would take more time than we have to spare. This isn't magic, Colonel. You don't change a nobody into a physical and mental giant by saying abracadabra or by teaching him how to pronounce Shazam properly. I'm aware of that, said Colonel Mannheim without rancor. Five years of work on Mr. Stanton must have taught you something, though. I should think you could repeat the process in less time. Farnsworth repeated the head-shaking. Human beings aren't machines, Colonel. They require time to heal, time to learn, time to integrate themselves. Remember that in spite of all our increased knowledge of anesthesia, antibiotics, viricides, and obstetrics, it still takes nine months to produce a baby. We're in the same position, only more so. I see, said Mannheim. Besides, Dr. Farnsworth continued, Stanton's body and nervous system are now close to the theoretical limit for human tissue. I'm afraid you don't realize what kind of mental stability and organization are required to handle the equipment he now has. I'm sure I don't, the colonel agreed. I doubt if anyone besides Stanton himself knows. Dr. Farnsworth's manner softened a little. You're probably quite right. Suffice it to say that Bartholomew Stanton is the only answer we've found so far, and the only answer visible in the foreseeable future to the problem posed by the Nipe. The colonel's face darkened. I keep hoping that our policy of handling the Nipe hasn't been a mistake. If it has, it's going to prove a fatal one for the whole race. Let's go into the lounge, Farnsworth said. Standing around in an empty chamber like this isn't the most comfortable way to discuss the fate of mankind. His voice brought hollow echoes from the walls. 
Colonel Mannheim grinned at the touch of lightness the biophysicist had injected into the conversation. Very well. I could do with some coffee, if you have some. All you want, said Dr. Farnsworth, leading the way toward the door of the chamber and opening it. Or if you'd prefer something with a little more power to it. Thanks, no. Coffee will do fine, said Mannheim. How about you, Mr. Stanton? Bart Stanton shook his head. I'd love to have some coffee, but I'll leave the alcohol alone. I'd just have the luck to be finishing a drink when our friend the Nipe popped in on us. And when I do meet him, I'm going to need every microsecond of reflex speed I can scrape up. They walked down a soft-floored, warmly-lit corridor to an elevator which whisked them up to the main level of the Neurophysical Institute building. Another corridor led them to a room that might have been the common room of one of the more exclusive men's clubs. There were soft chairs and shelves of books and reading tables and smoking stands, all quietly luxurious. There was no one in the room when the three men entered. We can have some privacy here, Dr. Farnsworth said. None of the rest of the staff will come in until we're through. Colonel Mannheim looked at the biophysicist speculatively. You seem to think secrecy is important all of a sudden. Bart Stanton grinned and kept silent. Dr. Farnsworth went over to a table where an urn of coffee radiated soft warmth. Cream and sugar over there on the tray, he said as he began to fill cups. Frankly, Colonel Mannheim said, I was going to ask you to find us a place where we could talk privately. You seem to have anticipated me. I thought you might have something like that in mind, said Dr. Farnsworth without looking up. The cups were filled and the three men sat down in a triangle of chairs before any of them spoke again. Colonel Mannheim took a sip from his cup and then looked up. All right, we'll begin this way. Mr. Stanton, granted that you've been through five years of hell, but how closely have you stayed in touch with the Nipe situation? As best I could, through news bulletins and information that your office has sent here. Could you give me an oral summary? Bart Stanton thought for a moment. It was true that he'd been out of touch with what had been going on outside the walls of the Neurophysical Institute for the past five years. In spite of the reading he'd done and the newscasts he'd watched and the TV tapes he'd seen, he still had no real feeling for the situation. There were hazy periods during that five years. He had undergone extensive glandular and neural operations of great delicacy, many of which had resulted in what could have been agonizing pain without the use of suppressors. As a result... He possessed a biological engine that, for sheer driving power and nicety of control, surpassed any other known to exist or to have ever existed on Earth, with the possible exception of the Nipe. But those five years of rebuilding and retraining had left a gap in his life. Several of the steps required to make the conversion from man to superman had resulted in temporary insanity, the wild, swinging imbalances of glandular secretions seeking a new balance, the erratic misfirings of neurons as they attempted to adjust to higher nerve impulse velocities, 
and the sheer fatigue engendered by cells which were acting too rapidly for a lagging excretory system, all had contributed to periods of greater or lesser mental abnormality. That he was sane now, there was no question. But there were holes in his memory that still had to be filled. He began to talk, rapidly but carefully, telling the colonel all he knew about the situation up to the present. It wasn't much. It was late October, 2091, and the Nipe, blithely evading capture for ten long years, was still going about his unknown and possibly incomprehensible business. The Nipe had become a legend. He had replaced Satan, the Boogeyman, Frankenstein's monster, and Mumbo-Jumbo, Lord of the Congo, in the public mind. He had taken on, in popular thought, the attributes of the genie, the vampire, the ghoul, the werewolf, and every other horror and hobgoblin that the mind of man had conjured up in the previous half-million years. That he had been connected with the mysterious crash in Siberia ten years before was almost a certainty. How he had managed to get from there to Leningrad without being seen once was more of a mystery, but certainly not impossible in the light of what had been done since. Eight months later, a non-vision phone call had been received by the Regents' Board of the Khrushchev Memorial Psychiatric Hospital in Leningrad, an odd, breathy voice offered, in very bad Russian, a meeting. The Nipe had managed to explain, in spite of the language handicap, that he did not want to be mistaken for a wild animal, as had happened with the forest ranger. The psychiatrists were divided in their opinions. Some thought that the call had been from a deranged person. When the Nipe actually showed up at the appointed place, those minds changed rapidly. The Nipe's ability to use any human language was limited. He picked up vocabulary and grammatical rules very rapidly, but he seemed completely unable to use a language beyond discussion of concrete actions and objects. His mind was simply too alien to enable him to do more than touch the edges of human communication. In the discussion of mathematics in particular, the Nipe seemed to be completely at a loss. He apparently thought of mathematics as a spoken language instead of a written one, and could not progress beyond simple diagrams. He wasn't captured in any real sense of the word. He refused to allow any physical tests on his body, and, short of threatening him at gunpoint, there didn't seem to be any practicable way to force him to accede to the human's wishes, and they couldn't do that. The Nipe had to be treated as an emissary from his home world, wherever that was. He'd killed a man, yes, but that had to be allowed as justifiable homicide in self-defense, since the Forester had drawn a gun and was ready to fire. Nobody could blame the late Wang Kulachenko for that, but nobody could blame the Nipe either. For six weeks, the humans and the Nipe had tried to arrive at a meeting of minds, and just when it would seem within grasp, it would fade away into mist. It was nearly a month before the Russian psychologists and psychiatrists realized that the reason the Nipe had come to them 
was because he had thought that they were the ruling body of that territory. The UN observers had stayed out of it at first. Before there was any kind of talk on a government level, there must be some kind of understanding on a personal level. And that, of course, was never achieved. Just what had set off the Nipe's anger hasn't been established yet, as far as Stanton knew. At a meeting one day he had simply become more and more incomprehensible, and then, without any warning, he had leaped out, killed three of the men with his bare hands, and gone out the window. And that had been the end of any diplomatic relations between humanity and the Nipe. Since that time, he'd been on a rampage of robbery and murder. He was as callously indifferent to human life and property as a human being might be with the life and property of a cockroach. There have been human criminals whose actions could be described in the same way, but the Nipe had a few touches that few human criminals would have thought of, and almost none would have had the capacity to execute. If... For instance, the knife had time to spare. His victims would be annoying problems in identification when found, for there would be nothing left but well-gnawed bones. And time to spare in this case meant twenty or thirty minutes. The knife had, if nothing else, a very efficient digestive tract. He ate like a shrew. And the knife never under any circumstances used any weapon but the weapons nature had given him hands or feet or claws or teeth never did he use a knife or gun or even a club almost as an afterthought one realized that the loot which the knife stole was seemingly unpredictable money as such he apparently had no use for he had taken gold silver and platinum but one raid for each of these elements had evidently been enough, except for silver, which had required three raids over a period of four years. Since then, he hadn't touched silver again. He hadn't tried yet for any of the radioactives except radium. He'd taken a full ounce of that in five raids, but hadn't attempted to get his hands on uranium, thorium, plutonium, or any of the other elements normally associated with atomic energy. Nor had he tried to steal any of the fusion materials, the heavy isotopes of hydrogen, or any of the lithium isotopes. Beryllium had been taken, but whether there was any significance in the thefts or not, no one knew. There was a pattern in the thefts nonetheless. They had begun small and increased. Scientific and technical instruments, oscilloscopes, X-ray generators, radar equipment, maser sets, dynostatic crystals, thermolite resonators, and so on, were stolen, complete, or gutted for various parts. After a while, he went on to bigger things. Whole aircraft with their crews had vanished. That he had not committed anywhere near all the crimes that had been attributed to him was certain, that he had committed a great many of them was equally certain. There was no doubt at all that his loot was being used to make instruments and devices of unknown kinds. He had used several of them on his raids, 
the one that could apparently phase out almost any electromagnetic frequency up to about a hundred thousand megacycles, including sixty-cycle power frequencies, was considered to be a particularly cute item. So was the gadget that reduced the tensile strength of concrete to about that of a good grade of marshmallow. After he had been operating for a few years, there was no installation on the face of the earth that could be considered night-proof for more than a few minutes. He struck when and where he wanted, and took whatever he needed. It was manifestly impossible to guard against the night, since no one knew what sort of loot might strike his fancy next, and there was therefore no way of knowing where or how he would hit next. Nor could he ever be found after one of his raids. They were plotted and followed out with diabolical accuracy and thoroughness. He struck, looted, and vanished, and wasn't seen again until his next strike. Colonel Mannheim, who had carefully puffed a cigar alight and smoked it thoroughly during Stanton's recitation, dropped the remains of the cigar into an ash receptacle. "'Accurate, but incomplete,' he said quietly. "'You must have made some guesses.' He looked from Bart Stanton to Dr. Farnsworth. "'I'd like to hear them.' Farnsworth finished off the last of his coffee. "'We've talked about it,' he admitted. "'Although I must say the hypothesis Bart has come up with would never have occurred to me. I'm still not sure I credit it, but,' he shrugged, I can't say that I disbelieve it, either. Mannheim turned his eyes back to Stanton. His silence was a question. Logically, my theory mightn't hold much water, Stanton admitted, but the evidence seems to be conclusive enough to me. He got up, went over to the coffee urn, and refilled his cup. It seems incredible to me that the combined intelligence and organizational ability of the U.N. government is incapable of finding anything out about one single alien, no matter how competent he may be, he said as he returned to his seat. Somehow, somewhere, someone must have gotten a line on the Nipe. He must have a base for his operations, and someone should have found it by this time. If there is such a base, then it must be possible to blast him out of it without resorting to the kind of work it took to produce me. I may be faster and more sensitive and stronger than the average man, but that doesn't mean that I have superhuman abilities to the extent that I can do in two or three years what the combined forces of the government couldn't do in ten. Certainly you wouldn't rely too heavily on it. And yet, apparently, you are. To me, that can only mean that you've got another ace up your sleeve. You know we're going to get the knife before I die. You either have a sure way of tracing him, or else you already know where he is. Which is it? Colonel Mannheim sighed. We know where he is. We've known for six years. End of Part Two